Well, here we are at the beginning of what's called Holy Week, and you look at the events of Holy Week, and it raises a few questions, at least for me, because I, I kind of want to know, like, how is it that at the beginning, you've got Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and everybody's cheering, and woo, Jesus, yeah, you know, uh, we love Jesus, and by the end of the week, the same crowd, like, is chanting, crucify him, crucify him, like, I used to think, are there different crowds? Like, did they bring in, you know, like, okay, uh, you guys are dismissed. Next crowd, come on in. You know, like, what's going on there? So how did that happen? Second question I have is like, like, what's the relevance for us? You know, it's like, uh, do we move to Florida, be by palm trees? You know, what's, what's the relevance of Palm Sunday and the early events? And then third, like, what's the deal with the fig tree? Anybody ever wonder that? It's like, what, you know, what's going on there? Oh, we just saw all these, these crazy events that happened at the beginning of Holy Week dramatized for us. But let me just recap. Jesus starts riding into Jerusalem, specifically into the temple, and he's riding on a donkey, on a baby donkey. And the crowds are all waving these palm branches. And on his way into Jerusalem, he pulls over to the side of the road. He curses a fig tree. Then he goes to the temple and he overturns some tables and he says a few cryptic words. And then later on, he veers back by that fig tree, which we see now is completely withered from the roots. And he says some words about hurling a mountain into the sea. And he concludes by telling his followers that they should ask and receive from God. Now, each of those incidents is usually kind of treated as a sort of an isolated, disconnected scene, but they're actually one coherent episode where Jesus is forever changing the way that God is relating to us. So, how does his donkey riding, fig tree cursing, temple overthrowing, mountain hurling episode do all of that? Like, what exactly is Jesus up to here? Well, let's start at the, the beginning. First things first. At the beginning of Mark 11, we read that Jesus starts riding into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And when he does this, he's actually fulfilling a prophecy that's over 500 years old. And the prophecy said that someday God was going to send a Messiah, which is biblical speak for a promised Savior King. And God was sending this promised Savior King who was going to establish God's reign and his rule on earth so that things down here would be like things up there, right? And that's what Messiah was going to do. And when this Messiah King entered Jerusalem, there were some very specific words about the way he would do that. We find this in Zechariah 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, for those who knew the scriptures, and most of them did, they were very biblically literate, even though they, a lot of them couldn't read and write, but they had memorized huge, huge swaths of scripture. They knew it way, way better than we do. They knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be in this moment. He's riding up to Mount Zion, up to Jerusalem, up to the temple on a colt, uh, the foal of a donkey. Now, imagine you're working for a company and the CEO of the company is about to retire and they're going to uh, replace the CEO. They're, they're about to announce the successor to the CEO. And then one day you suddenly show up and you are driving the CEO company car and you pull into his parking spot and then you set up shop in his office. It's really clear to everybody what your intentions are, as deluded as they may be. Right? Everybody's going to know exactly what you have in mind. Israel is awaiting a new leader, and Jesus is riding the CEO's donkey. <laughs> and not only that, he is pulling into his parking spot. And here's what I mean by that. Like, 
there's a uh, long-standing Jewish tradition that whenever Messiah, who had been promised for hundreds of years, whenever he would come, he would enter into Jerusalem from the east side, specifically through the east gate. Exactly what Jesus is doing here. You can read about this in uh, Ezekiel 44, verse, the first three verses, which is a prophecy in the Old Testament that said the Lord would enter in and exit out of the east gate. So Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side of Jerusalem, right down through the east gate, directly into the temple through that entrance. Not only is he driving the CEO car, but he is pulling into his parking spot as well. This is a very, very politically and religiously charged kind of thing that Jesus is announcing at this moment. Very powerful moment. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowd see him coming toward the east gate, and they respond in a very excited way. And we read about their response. Mark 11.8 says, Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Now, in between the Old and New Testament, there are about 400 years, and we sometimes call those, Christians call them the 400 silent years because God didn't speak authoritatively through his word, through any prophets, we, uh, anything like that. There's kind of the silent years until the Gospels hit. And, but we have a lot of Jewish literature from that time. We know a lot about what went on, and we know a lot from history. For one thing, uh, one of the things that happened during those 400 silent years was the Greeks invaded under Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great comes in, invades about 329 B.C. And I read this week that Alexander had conquered the entire civilized world by the time he was 29. So what's our excuse, right? <laughs> I was like, wow, you know, it's amazing. That's why I called him Alexander the Great. So he comes in, he conquers. Things go good for a while, but then he dies. He dies at 29, so, you know, there's that. Uh, so uh, the Greeks invaded, occupied, things are good. Then Alexander dies, his kids take over, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and it's this big, horrible, horrible things go on, and horrible things happen in, in Israel. You could read all about it. There's a lot of intertestamental books. Really, really gross atrocities. But what happens is because all of this is going on, there's this revolt. There's a rebellion by, led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus. Judas the Hammer. Okay, he sounds, I always think he sounds like a, a professional wrestler. The Hammer comes in. Well, Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabeus comes in. He leads this revolt, this rebellion, and they set up their own rule for the first time in a long, long time. So, they are actually rule themselves until the Romans come in in 63 BC. So while they are ruling themselves, they mint coins because that's what you did. You know, you have to have some sort of coinage. And our coins, like, we'll have pictures of uh, a president. We've got dead presidents on our, our coins. We've got uh, um, George Washington on this one. Got different people put faces. Back then, like the, the Romans, they would put Caesar on their coins. You kind of like want to know who's the boss, who's the king, who's who's in charge. Well, uh, Israelites, the, the Jews, they, they didn't do graven images. So when Judas Maccabeus was in charge, guess what symbol they put on their coins? Anybody? Palm branches. They put palm branches on their coins. So you can actually get pictures. See, there's palm branches. We, we have coins from this time. Now, palm branches became kind of a symbol of Jewish nationalism and Jewish rebellion and re revolution. And you can kind of imagine, like, this is like a, all these people, they're waving palm branches, chanting, 
make Israel great again, right? That's, that's kind of the idea. This, is, this huge political rally is what's going on. Very politically charged, what they're doing. Now, the irony begins to creep in the story at this point because the crowds are chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is from Psalm 118. This same psalm has this verse. This is believed to be a, a messianic psalm begin, uh, about like the coming of the future Messiah, the future Savior King. The same psalm has these words. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we're about to find out that this crowd that is praising Jesus in this moment is about to have a, a change of heart in a real short period of time. And they will, in fact, reject the stone of Jesus, who will, in fact, become the new cornerstone, the corner foundational stone from which God will build an entirely new temple. So Jesus goes into the temple now, but on the way he pulls over, makes a stop. We see this in Mark eleven thirteen. He pulls over, he goes up to a fig tree, and he's looking for fruit, which is kind of weird because it's spring and there's, there's no fruit on fig trees that time of year. It's early spring, impossible for a fig tree to have fruit. But he curses the thing. He doesn't cuss it. He, he curses the thing. And, and it's like, what is going on? Is he, is he hangry? You know, is he like hungry and like, oh, sort of, sort of grumpy because like, oh, there are no figs. You know, curse you, fig tree. What, what's going on? Is he trying to tell us something here? Now, one thing you got to remember as you read the Gospels, like Jesus was more than a prophet, but he played the role of a prophet. And he is a prophetic voice toward Israel, toward the people of God. And whenever like you look at the Old Testament, uh, the prophets of Israel, they were really good at using kind of a lot of symbolic actions to get their message across, sort of like object lessons, right? So Jeremiah takes these clay pots and he smashes them to, to kind of symbolize like this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Uh, this, this, God God's going to do this to Jerusalem. He's going to smash you like this clay pot. Or Ezekiel, if you know this story, he uh, made a big clay brick and he inscribed the word Jerusalem on it. And he set it outside the gate of Jerusalem so everybody could see him. And uh, he builds, builds a siege wall around it and little miniature battering rams. Uh, kind of like his first Lego set, I guess. And then, then Ezekiel laid on his side for hundreds of days and, and his back's against the brick as a visual way of depicting what God was going to do to Jerusalem. And people are like, you know, walking in going, oh, there's Ezekiel. You know, it's like, uh, you know, like, you think this is really going to happen? I don't know. Well, Jesus decides to prophetically curse this fig tree. And in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' cursing of the tree is sandwiched, uh, the, the cursing and the withering of the tree is sandwiched around these events that happen in the temple. So let's talk about what Jesus does in the middle here uh, when he goes into the temple. He overturns the tables of the people that are selling stuff so that the people could perform sacrifices. Because it's like, oh, you got to use, you know, you got to use Jewish money. You got to use uh, unblemished sheep. You know, you travel from a long distance. You can't, you know, bring the sheep with you. So you buy a sheep to sacrifice or you buy pigeons, to, all that kind of stuff. So all this is going on. Jesus comes in, he overturns these. And it says in Mark eleven seventeen. Is it not written, my house, the temple, will be called a house of prayer for all nations? And then he quotes Jeremiah 7. But you have made it a den of robbers. And everybody knew exactly what Jesus was doing at this moment. Because he's quoting Jeremiah. And the entire book of Jeremiah is about one thing. God is saying he is going to bring destruction to Jerusalem and specifically to the temple in Jerusalem. And it's one thing to pee in the pool, because everybody does that. It's another thing to do it from the diving board, okay? So when, when Jesus, reading from the book of Jeremiah while standing in the temple, that's doing it from the diving board, okay? 
So there's a problem. Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7. I want to read the context of this verse that Jesus is quoting so we can catch its impact. This is Jeremiah 7, verse 9. God says through the prophet Jeremiah to the people Israel, he says, will you steal and murder? Commit adultery and perjury? Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then you come and stand before me in this house, in the temple, which bears my name, and say, well, we're safe. We're safe to do these, these detestable things because like, we ask for forgiveness. You know? We came and we sacrificed in the temple. We're, God's got to forgive us. We're safe. Has this house, he says, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? Has it become like a little hidey hole, a way to get away? Now, if you don't pick up on the fact that Jesus is quoting Jeremiah, you're going to be tempted to think that, well, he's just calling them robbers because you know, they're overcharging people and robbing people. And, and they were, but that's not what Je- Jeremiah is talking about at all. God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah, like, look, you're my people. You're my people. You're supposed to be bearing fruit. You're intended to do that, but you're failing to produce the fruit that I intended you to produce. And yet, in spite of that, like, like you feel like my temple is your temple and it's this place of arbitrary safety that you can just kind of come hide out here, a safe haven, you know, a, a, a robber's den. And the context of this passage is that God is pronouncing that he is going to completely destroy the temple altogether. So you got Jesus pronouncing a curse on a fig tree, and then the withering of the fig tree, and right in the middle of that episode is Jesus quoting Jeremiah 7 in the temple. Is it possible Jesus is denouncing the entire Old Testament system altogether? Jesus not only pronounces a prophetic curse on the fig tree, but he pronounces a prophetic curse on the temple. Look, a few verses down in Jeremiah reads this. He says, I'll take away their harvest, declares Yahweh. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. I have given, what I've given them will be taken away from them. Jesus' message was very clear for all who had ears to hear. So when Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, like, oh, the people loved him. You know, they laid branches down. Ooh, yay, Jesus. On his way out, the text says that they want him dead. If Jesus had simply tried to reform, you know, like some of those people because of the overcharging, everybody loves a reformer, you know, like the people would have loved him more. But instead, they clearly understand what Jesus is doing. He is pronouncing coming destruction on their temple. He's denouncing the entire Old Testament temple system altogether. And from their point of view, like all they can see is like, okay, the one place on earth where the fullness of God is most likely to dwell is the temple. The one place where your prayers are most likely to be heard, the temple. The only place, the one place, the only place where forgiveness of sins could be sought is the temple. And Jesus is denouncing the temple altogether. And the people are in shock. And the disciples are in shock. So Jesus says to his disciples, Mark eleven twenty three, 23, he says, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, it'll be done for them. Now what mountain is Jesus talking about? Well, the temple is built on a mountain. Jerusalem's a, like a big mountain. The temple is on a mountain, Mount Zion. It's the mountain right under their nose. And when Jesus says these words, these words would define a new era that he was establishing. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. So your Father in heaven 
may forgive your sins. Remember, the one place, the most likely place to find God was the temple. One place where your prayers are going to be heard is in the temple. The only place where you get forgiveness of sins, like this is the temple. And Jesus is saying, well, you might as well chuck Mount Zion into the sea. He denounces the temple system altogether. And now, now his followers could ask and receive any place, any time, including asking and receiving for forgiveness. Jesus is throwing open the doors to the storehouse of heaven and making it accessible to his followers. Heaven is being opened up in a whole new way, forever changing the way that we ask and receive. And of course, that only makes sense if Jesus is, in fact, the, the stone the builders rejected, which has become the new cornerstone of a whole new different kind of temple. It's a new temple we read about in the, the book of Ephesians. Paul writes this to followers of Jesus. He says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a what? A holy temple in the Lord. Holy temple. The very beginning of creation, God said that the whole world was his place of rest. It was The whole world was his temple. It was filled with his glory. And then sin entered the world and a chasm was created between God and humanity, between heaven and earth. And much of the story of the Bible is a story of God reuniting the two. Reuniting God and his people and reuniting heaven to earth. And a major development in that story was that God chose one nation among all the nations of the earth and he quarantined them apart, uh, off for himself, set them apart from the rest of the world. And that nation was Israel. And within that quarantined community, he separated off and quarantined another segment of space, and that was known as the temple. And then within the temple, he did it again, and that place was called the Holy of Holies, which was the most separated of all the separated places. And that one spot in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in the midst of Israel, became the place on earth where, once again, God's glory dwelled in its fullness. But now Jesus comes along, and what does he do? He rips open the curtain of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, separated God's presence from all humanity, rips it from top to bottom. Jesus came to reunite heaven and earth, to reunite God and humanity. And to, he's building a brand new temple, not built of brick and mortar, but built of flesh and blood. And to this day, there are over a billion temples walking this earth, asking and receiving praying in every nation, every, every tribe, every tongue, every language. All those people, temples of the living God, receptacles of heaven, capable of asking and receiving in ways that were never possible before. That's what the triumphal entry is all about. And the bottom line for us as Jesus followers, what Jesus tells us, from now on you can ask and receive. Jesus has flung open the storerooms of heaven and he wants us to come and to ask and to receive. And if you go up to the average person on the street and you go, like, hey, what do you think Jesus would have said about uh, asking for God, asking God for stuff in prayer? They'd probably go, well, you know, he'd probably say, you know, just be content with what you have and, you know, quit asking for so, so much, you know, just be grateful for what you already have. But that's not what Jesus teaches at all. Like throughout the scriptures, Jesus cannot tell us enough to ask and ask 
and ask. He goes, your Father in heaven, He's a good Father. And He loves to give good gifts to His children. So ask. Tells us to be like a persistent widow and just ask. Says you don't have because you do not ask. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. I know this sounds crazy, but Jesus can't say it enough. He wants you to ask, and he wants you to ask like you've never asked before. He's once again made heaven available to earth. Once again made God available to us. And he wants us to ask. James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so you can just spend it on, what you, on your pleasures. The good news is that when we spend all of our lives like wanting God's will to be done, wanting heaven to come to earth, wanting glory to be brought to him, that's what it means to ask in his name, that, that uh, his name would be made famous, that, that Jesus' name would be lifted up. When that's what our prayers are about, then we can ask for everything we want and he'll give it to us. Of course, the converse is true too. Like when it's about our name and our fame and our glory and our kingdom, well then don't expect a whole lot. That's what it means to pray in his name. So what should we be asking God for? Like, like what's out of limits? Because like I always wanted a, a Lamborghini, or a Ferrari, a like red one, like Magnum. You know, like, like what can we ask for? Like, see, here's what I think. I think when you ask in his name for, for his glory, there's nothing out of limits. As I've been preparing this message, I got convicted a bunch of times. Like, I think God just wants me to ask for more. I, I think my prayers are too small a lot of times. Anybody else ever do this? Like, you kind of have sort of the generic prayers that God can answer pretty easily so that, you know, he doesn't look bad. You know, it's like, oh, you know, hey, God. Yeah. Or you pray like, like, oh, help them. Okay, or, or guide me, or, or, you know, like be with, some, be with me, be with, you know, help me to have a good day. Like those are wimpy prayers. Like, you know, it's like, I think God wants us to, to pray bold prayers, to pray in ways that he can show up in a powerful way, that, that we can't just go, oh, you know, that might have happened anyway, or it was kind of coincidence, or, you know, I think he wants to answer, and he's not always going to give us a yes answer, because like, you know, but he's a good father, Jesus says. He wants to give us good gifts. And sometimes what we think is a good gift isn't good for us. Uh, probably not getting the Lamborghini, but you know, uh, uh, the timing could be wrong or there's a bigger picture at work that we're unaware of. But imagine this. Imagine one day God's showing you around heaven and he, and he opens up this room and you walk into this room and there's, it's just filled with gifts. All these presents, they're, they're just like waiting to be unwrapped. All sorts of shapes and sizes. And you're like, what is this? And you turn to God and you go, what's this room? He goes, well, these are all the gifts that I wanted to give you while you were on earth, but you never asked. What a tragedy that would be. I think we're called to pray bold prayers. Ephesians 3 says, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine. Our faith to pray for tomorrow should be a mountain-moving kind of prayer. That doesn't mean like, I just have to have lots of faith and just kind of say, you know, like, oh, just, you know, think and be faithful and I believe, I believe, I believe. I don't think that's, that's it at all. Maybe it's just having enough faith to ask and then to believe that, that God can answer. I love the way, love the way Max Lucado puts this. Hey, he says, the, this is the promise of prayer. We can change God's mind. 
His ultimate will is inflexible, but the implementation of his will is not. He does not change in his character and purpose, but he does alter his strategy because of the appeals of his children. We do not change his intention, but we can influence his actions. That amazing thought. Like God wants to partner with us in prayer. We have direct access to God now because Jesus overturned the entire temple system and is the cornerstone of a whole new way to relate to God. So my encouragement to you is that you would start asking in ways that you've never asked before. And maybe just write those things down. Write them down um, and then be diligent. Be persistent at it. And then whenever God answers, don't like erase it or cross it out. Just write and put a little star by it or write what he answered. So as you go through it, you just be like reminded. And you'd be like, oh, thanks, God. Thanks for answering this. You can give thanks and remember, if you do that, I promise your faith will grow over time. And your picture of God's goodness and his generosity will grow over time. And you, the temple of the living God, will live out your full potential in a way you've never seen before. That's my encouragement for us. Would you do that? Would you stand with me now as we close in a word of prayer? Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for making the things of God available to us, the things of heaven available to us, that we can come to you directly in prayer. We can ask. Lord, as we go through this week, help us to really grasp that we are your temple, the place where your spirit dwells. Help us to never underestimate the power of that and the opportunity we have to look up to you, our good Father, And just ask, knowing you are eager to pour out your gifts and your blessings on us. May we be a church that asks and asks in faith. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.